The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. All right, good morning. Welcome to Parkview. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here, and we are tackling the topic of faith this fall. So we're looking at the book of James. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there, or you can use your uh, Bible app in any form. Just turn to the book of James. If you don't have a Bible with you, all the verses we're going to look at are on the screens behind me, and there's an outline in your bulletin you can follow along as well. So um, I was thinking about James this morning. Uh, if you are familiar with the book, the book of James uh, makes us squirm in a lot of ways. And we have to remember this comes from the heart of a God who loves us. God doesn't want to just make us feel guilty or ashamed, or ashamed but God is inviting us uh, to live a, a whole new kind of life than this world offers. And James might be the kind of guy that if you found out James was coming over to your house, there might be a part of your heart that would initially sink, like, oh no, what's he going to bring up today? Or what's, what's going to be the hard topic he brings up? But he's the kind of guy that when he leaves your house, you're in a better place than you were before he got there. And so that's going to be a little bit of today's passage too. He, he's really intent on our faith this morning. Is our faith the real deal? Or is our faith useless? And so when I took that topic of uselessness, I did a study of what were some of the most useless inventions ever out there, okay? And so these were three. I've got pictures of them. Most useless inventions. Here's one. The shoe umbrella is one. We should see. There we are. Shoe umbrellas really were marketed but didn't fly, okay? Another one was the baby mop. And I can understand the concept. You know, if the kid's crawling around the floor, maybe you could mop it for us. Uh, that didn't fly either. Third one maybe had some, some possibilities. If you can't see that, that's a muffler. And it was really designed that when you get off of work, you just put a patty of hamburger in there, close it up, and then by the time you're home, your hamburger's cooked for you. So, uh, yeah, George Foreman might have played with that before he came up with his real deal. But that was that one. Um, I want to pull back to, to a comic. Remember the Farsight comics that used to be out a while ago? Those are some of my favorites. You might not be able to read this, but on the guy's shark cage, the sign says Don's Discount Shark Cages, all right? And so there he is, and also on the cage that just got devoured is the same sign, Don's Discount Shark Cages. So you can imagine that guy thinking, I wish I hadn't gotten Don's Discount Shark Cage. So that obviously that cage is useless. So, um, but what's even more important, and, and, and James, you're gonna sense a, a, an urgency in today's passage, is that our faith can't be useless. Um, faith is crucial uh, to our relationship with God. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And if you look at a basic verse from the Bible, like John three sixteen, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. You do not want your faith to be useless. Faith is the bread and butter of our relationship with God. And so, as you remember, James is writing to Christians that he dearly loves, and they've been under persecution, and they've had to flee their country. And so many of these Christians are living in a foreign culture, in a foreign land. They're being challenged. They're being tempted to walk away from God. And so James is really dialing in on their faith. He wants them to cling strong in their hard times so that God can be very real to them and meet them in these moments of trial and tribulation. So you're going to see that's clearly on James's heart. Is our faith the real deal? And so let me just read the passage to us. Again, the words will be up on the screen. Then we'll pray, and then we'll start talking about what's going on here. So we're going to read James 2, verses 14 to 26. 
And James says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, but show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? There's our word for this morning. Faith apart from works is useless. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray before we look into this. And why don't you pray first? Could you pray, God, uh, speak to me this morning from your word. Ask God to speak to you and to show you a truth that he wants you to know. And I need your prayers this morning too. Could you pray that I would make this passage as clear as possible, that God would speak clearly through his word. God, it's awesome to be here, to be worshiping you, and now to hear from you. Speak clearly to your people. In your great name we pray, amen. All right, so let's start first with uh, the first point here is that useless faith does not work. Useless faith does not work. There's a couple things that James says the way he describes a useless faith. One is that useless faith refuses to care. And we read that scenario where he says, what good is it, my brothers? Again, these are people he loves. Uh, and and my, my love for you guys, my love for seeing us as a church really get this. What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? And so he's asking the real question, what, is, what does it look like to have saving faith? And we saw how essential that is. Then he gives this scenario. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, uh, that's softened a little bit in English. Literally, it means to the point of nakedness, like very little clothing on because of extreme poverty. Poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled without giving them the things they need for the body. What good is that? And also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, it sounds kind of rude and offensive what is said to them here as we read it in English. But even in, in James's day, it was even more so. Um, that phrase, go in peace, literally meant God bless you. It's a greeting you would give to people either as you saw them or as you're leaving. Like, may God bless you. May God do good things for you. And that expression where it says uh, literally about be warm and filled, it's like go warm and film Go warm and fill yourself. Uh, stay warm and well-fed, like just incredibly off. 
Like if you were a third-party observer of that little exchange, you would go, you are sick. Like how could you say something so offensive to that poor person? And so that's what's going on here. And, and James says that's, that faith is dead. That, that faith is worthless. That kind of faith does no good for the person in need. So maybe that needy person is sitting there seeing a person of, it says they're a person of faith coming their way, and they go, good, maybe this person will help me. Maybe this person will do something for me. But it was pointless for that needy person. But James also says that kind of faith is equally pointless, useless, for the person that says they have faith, but they don't have works, okay? So it's useless. What's interesting is you look at a lot of James's teaching, he's going to parallel a lot of things that Jesus taught. And Jesus said some very challenging things about people who are of faith and how they respond to people in need. One of his most challenging was in Matthew 25, and I do want to spend a couple minutes there and just show this powerful link. James isn't just going on a tangent of saying we should take care of the poor. He's right in line with a lot of the key teachings of Jesus as well. So in Matthew 25, verse 34, the context here is Jesus is talking about the day when he comes back and when he is the king over all the nations. And he's going to gather all the people of the nations before him, and he is the king. And he's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous as the shepherd would separate the, the sheep from the goats. And this is what Jesus says to the righteous. He says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he speaks to the other side. We won't read through that, but it's basically the opposite. You did not feed me when I was hungry. You did not give me drink when I was thirsty. And he goes through and they ask the same question. Well, when? When did we see you hungry? And again, the parallel is when you did not do that for one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And his strong punchline is to the righteous. I'm not intentionally saying you guys are the righteous and you guys are the goats, but just as Jesus was speaking, as he was speaking to the righteous, he says, you now will enter into eternal life. But then very strongly he said uh, to the unrighteous that you are condemned to eternal punishment. This is a huge deal. James, again, isn't flying off on a tangent, but this is heart and soul of the kind of things that Jesus Christ taught. It's also echoed in 1 John when John wrote this, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees a brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. James is painting a picture of what authentic faith looks like. And if we have the real deal, there's going to be a move in our hearts toward those who are in, in need. We are going to see mercy fly out of our hearts and lives when we are confronted with somebody who is, is in need. And so the, the question James is asking these folks is, is your faith valid? 
Is your faith leaning you towards those who are in need? Now, I'm going to need to say this a couple different times. James, in the next chapter, will say, we all struggle in many ways. James is not calling us to perfection. But what James is exploring here is, there's, is there a growing love in your heart for God and for people? And does that love move you to move toward the needy out of a response of mercy? Because that is a picture of somebody who understands that they themselves have received mercy from God. That is a sign of a true faith, not a useless faith, but a true faith. And so I think for us as Americans, especially, this is a really good passage for us to think about. Um, I think uh, it's easy for us as Christians to look at other Christians and point out their problems, okay? And maybe even generationally to do that. It's easy for us as believers in 2015 to look back at the believers in the 1800s that owned slaves and maybe even mistreated slaves. And easy for us to look back and say, how could, how could they have done that? And say that they have a faith in God. I wonder if 100 years from now, what will be the issues that a next generation of believers will look back at us in this century and say, how could they have done that? And I wonder if especially if it won't have something to do with what we've done, with what God has given us. In 2000, there was a study done by um, World Vision where they looked at how much money globally do Christians make in a year. And it was $15 trillion of income. And then they looked at how much money are Christians giving away to either churches or mission organizations or relief agencies. And it was less than 2%. And the study went on to, to figure that if every Christian around the world simply tithed, you could double the budget of every church, every Christian institution, every relief agency. You would also have enough money to meet the needs globally for basic water and food needs and basic medical needs. And you would still have $920 billion left to spend to meet the needs of people. So I wonder if, if perchance, and, and I think we have to ask this by the nature that we live in the United States, that we have so much and yet we're not aware of that. Here, I, and I've, I've shown this a couple years ago, I just got to show it again. If you go to this website called, called the Global Rich List, I love to remind my kids of this at different times. Dad, we're not rich. Dad, we don't have that much. It's like, yeah, watch this. Okay, so you go to globalrichlist.com, uh, you type under income. Um, there might be a place where you have to say, where do you live? So it transfers it into dollars. But you type in a salary, and I'm going to type in $50,000 this morning. That's average income in Johnson County. And you look and you see where you stand globally with the rest of the planet. I got my math wrong last hour. But basically, we are, uh, if you make $50,000, you are wealthier than 99.69% of the planet. And we don't think that way because we have neighbors. We, our kids go to school with other kids, other families. We see what they have. We tend to put ourselves in the middle. We do not see ourselves as in the 99.69 percentile. And I think one thing, again, I'm going to talk about positive things I'm seeing, but I think we have to pause here and just say, is, is my faith legit? And is the way that I'm spending what God has blessed me with a, a reflection of an authentic faith? And so again, when God challenges us with things like this from his word, it's not to make us squirm. It's that I think he's inviting us to a whole new level of trusting him and then being used by him to help others, 
That's where real life is. And when you talk to the people in your life that are, that are living by faith, that are laid, laying out their lives for the sake of others, that's where you're going to see the people that are living with the abundant life, with a joyful life. And I thank God for this church, that there are many examples of people reflecting that goodness. I mean, the next three weeks, you can't walk through here without seeing a shoebox. Okay, that's going to be going on. There's, you know, each year we keep sending out more and more of those. And I, I praise God for that. I praise God for the support for things like Faith Academy and the spot and the way you guys have come around orphan ministries in Ethiopia and Rafa House. I mean, this is a very generous church, very responsive church. Even things like just stepping up uh, to volunteer, to to uh, mentor students, to be a leader uh, of other people's kids, you know, in student ministry, children's ministry. That's awesome. There's also something I want to put our attention to. It's in your bulletin. There's a link to this, but there's also some flyers in the foyer. The deacons are kind of revamping this program we've had before called Faith in Action, where either on this brochure or online, you can, you can list things that you do that might be helpful to people that are in, in trouble. Like you have a, the ability to do some plumbing. If we come across as a church, a family in need for some plumbing, we could match the need with the, the capability, which you don't want me doing that, but the capability to fix plumbing. We would love to have that database available. So there's a real desire here as a church that as we hear of needs, to try to match those needs with people who are gifted to meet those needs. And so that, that's something the deacons are doing. You can let, help them out by filling that out for them. Let me also say there's kind of a new trend happening around here as well, where maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, when there was a need, you immediately thought of maybe calling the church or calling the deacons to step in. One thing we're really developing here are these community groups that gather together under the banners of word, care, and mission. And under this banner of care, we're hearing many stories of people that you're in community together with other families. And when hardship comes your way, there's people who already know you. There's people who are stepping into that hardship with you, or, or it goes the other way around. You're involved with these families, and you see a family going through crisis, and you already know them. You can step in and care. We're hearing so many stories of people being cared for in community groups, and other stories where, let's say, maybe um, I'm in a community group and say my neighbor is struggling, and I just let my group know about it. Hey, I've got a neighbor. He's not in our group. I'm not sure he's a Christian, but he's really struggling. And to hear stories of groups coming around needs in that way. So as we're in this, you know, our desire would be that everybody here is in a community group, that if you have a need that comes up in your life, there's already people who know you. They've been praying for you, and they can step in and meet that need. So right now we're kind of in that middle ground of both. We don't have everybody in a community group yet, but we'd love to get you there. Um, but if you're not, we would still love to have, again, this database of, you know, the deacons able and equipped to step in and help when there are needs. So um, just keep praying. Again, I just celebrate the ways that God is using you, that your faith is in action and, and the way you guys in many ways are moving toward those who are in need. But James is just getting our attention that real faith will show itself by showing mercy for people in need. Let me just say one other element of useless faith. Uh, James says this, that useless faith will resemble demonic faith. I don't know if you caught this, but look at verse 19 where he said, but if you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So another sign of a faith that is useless is, is it's kind of like the demon's faith. I don't know if you know this, but the demons know a lot about God. 
We don't have time to go into this, but a demon is a fallen angel. And there was a time where demons existed with God in heaven. So there's a chance that demons know a lot more about God than we do. They've seen him. They've been in his presence. They've seen his power and his glory. And so they have this knowledge about God, but that is not translated into faith. The other thing it says about demons is that they shudder. When they think about God, they've seen how great he is. The word shudder means to shake uncontrollably. They freak out when they think about God or when they're in his presence. And so uh, in spite of the fact that they fear him greatly and they know him deeply, uh, they still have no real faith in him. And so that's a good challenge to us because sometimes we think faith is, is maybe just what we know about God or that faith is maybe our emotional response to him here or there. Well, the demons have that kind of faith. But yet a demon obviously does not love God, does not follow God, does not obey God. A demon will think that he doesn't even need God. He can pull this off without God. And so I wonder if that's characteristic of us too, is that we may dabble with God. We may appease God now and then. We're afraid of him. So maybe to keep him off our backs, we'll do a few good things here and there, or give to this charity or that. But basically we do our thing instead of his thing. And so James would say that faith doesn't work. But then he swings back and says, but this is the faith that works. Here's the saving faith that actually works, that, that true faith is going to result in good works. And so I need to spend a few minutes here because this part of James can be kind of tricky for people. In fact, Martin Luther, the reformer, did not like the book of James. He called it uh, straw. He said the book of James will just burn up in the judgment because uh, he did not like this part about faith and works because it appears to completely contradict what Paul taught about faith and works. Let me show you two verses side by side. If you've never looked into this tension before, let me just kind of lay it before you. If you look at what Paul wrote in Romans 3.28, he said this, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Okay, so one is justified by faith, not by works. But James in James 2.24 said, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So which is it? So there's a couple things we need to look at, but you need to know that Paul and James are looking at the same faith. And it's like you have two eyes looking at the same object. And when you get it from two perspectives, you get, a, you get better depth perception. So you understand faith better when you understand it, both from what Paul is saying and from what James is saying. So let's just clarify a couple things. First of all, James and Paul were teammates. They weren't like Democrat, Republican, like constantly debating each other about what faith is. They were teammates. And one place you can look to see that is in Acts 15, where the early church leaders were wrestling with what is the true gospel. And you see all the heroes of the early church uh, debating here and coming to grips with what is the gospel. Peter speaks for a while. Paul speaks for a while. And the last voice recorded speaking at this council is James. And so they leave that in full agreement on what the gospel is. So Paul and James were teammates, okay? So that's one thing we need to know. The second thing we need to know when you look at what did Paul teach about faith and works and what did James teach about them is you need to understand the words that they used. Words are important. They have meaning, even though it may be the same word. Uh, here's a, a, and, and you need to know which one they're using. For example, there was a missionary from the United States who went to Australia and he was speaking to a church 
And the first thing he said when he got up, he said, my wife would love to be with us this morning, but she's under the weather. And the whole room went, oh, like this. And the guy had no idea what he said. He later found out that, you know, we understood that to mean that she's sick. In Australia, that means that somebody is excessively hungover after a night of drinking. And so when he comes rolling in there and says, my wife is under the weather, they went, oh, you know, so, but he had no idea, okay? He was using a phrase he was familiar with, but it didn't work in that context. Another example is the word football. If you say football to somebody from England, they're thinking soccer, right? If you say football to somebody from Australia, Australia's made it twice into this sermon. If you say Australian football, they're going to think, if you've ever seen that, Australian rules football is amazing. Humongous guys in really tight little t-shirts and, and shorts, like crushing each other. The ball is about as big as one of their heads. You know, it's like this big and they're kicking it around. They're just destroying each other. The weirdest thing about that game are the officials. They have these skinny little guys that stand at the end and when a goal is scored, he just comes waddling out and goes, and that's it. Like you would think there'd be something like huge, like with all these big guys, but that's Australian rules football. It's usually muddy big ball guys killing each other. So, and then when you say American football, of course you're talking about one of the greatest sports ever, right? Especially with the Hawkeyes going 6-0 and in American football. So, but if you just roll out the word football, it means different things to different people. Well, the same thing on two key words that Paul used and that James used. The first word is the word justify. And just, if you are new here this morning, you're new to church, hang, hang with me. I'm going to try to just make this as clear as we can, okay? So justify, this is crucial. This is like, how do I know I can have a relationship with God? You need to understand the word justify. Even if you look it up in, in our dictionary, in American dictionary, English dictionary, you would see it has two meanings. One is the, the theological meaning of being declared righteous before God. That when God sees you, in spite of the fact that we're all sinners, that if, when we are justified, God looks at us and sees us as righteous, as good. And that only happens through faith in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can help a sinner become righteous in the eyes of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So when Paul talks about being justified, that's what he's referring to. And when James is using the word justified, there's another definition in the English dictionary. Same was true during James's day. Justified can also mean to prove yourself, to prove yourself valid. And so what James is talking about is if your faith is real, then the people around you will see that that's true by the way that you're living. James is not saying that you're showing God. You're showing God all your good works so that then he'll declare you righteous. James is not saying that. And so you could look at it this way. Paul's view of justification goes vertical. That's between me and God. James's view of justification goes horizontal. If my faith is real, then people around me are going to see my good works, okay? So that's the word justified. The other word these two guys use differently sometimes is the word works. And so Paul would use works to refer to things that we do to try to earn God's favor. Like for example, in a little while, you're going to see some people get baptized. It's awesome. They're going to tell you how they met Jesus. And, and, uh, but this does not save them. Some people might say, there are some religious activities you have to do to earn God's favor. And Paul says, no. Those are the works that Paul's referring to. When he says you're saved by grace through faith, not by works, that's what he's talking about. You don't earn God's favor by going to church, by giving money, by getting baptized. Uh, you are not saved by works. You are saved by the grace of God. So that's what Paul's referring to. 
What James is referring to, and sometimes Paul does as well though, is, is acts of obedience and love toward God and acts of kindness and love towards people. Those are, those are good works. And so what Paul is saying is we are saved, we are justified before God, declared righteous before God by faith alone, not by our works. We don't try to say, God, look what I've done for you. God says in the book of Isaiah, even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to him. Our, our good works do not save us. Only the death of Jesus Christ on the cross saves us. And so what James would say is our good works, though, are acts of kindness and obedience that prove that we really love God, okay? So as you look now at what is saving faith, um, saving faith is involved then with these, oops, don't fall down, good, excellent. Saving faith is involved of these two aspects. First of all, we are justified by faith alone. Romans 5.1 says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, let me just show you that James also believed this. If you look at James 121, James says this, therefore put away all filthiness, all rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word of God, which is able to save your souls. James knew that that being declared righteous before God, our salvation is all an act of God's grace, that he implanted his word in our souls and that he saved our souls. James would not say that we save ourselves. He would say it was all God who did that. But then James would say that our works justify true faith, that when we do good works, that proves that our faith is real. And I, I need to um, walk us through this because the example James points to is this man named Abraham. And if, again, if you're new this morning, now I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament. And Abraham was considered the father of the faith. Okay, he is the example of what it means to trust God and to have faith in God. And so James says this. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? We'll explain that in a little bit. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. The story of Abraham is amazing in, in, in that he is lifted up as being a father of the faith, but he is a man who struggled in many ways, just like we did. And his story goes like this, that Abraham lived in a, in a land with his people, and God appeared to him and said, I want you to leave your family, I want you to leave your land, and I want you to follow me. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, and I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless you. And Abraham showed amazing faith right away and started following God. And God led him uh, to a new land. And God continued to promise him, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. Now, Abraham kept getting older, 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 and he had no children. And his wife was getting older, even to the point where he was around 90 years old, and he still had no kids. And yet God, in a fresh way, renewed his promise to him. In Genesis 15, God took Abraham out and showed him the stars in the sky. If you were out early this morning, it's an amazing morning. Just stars everywhere, a clear sky. It was that kind of night. And God said, you see these stars? Just like that will be your descendants, Abraham. And I'm going to bless you. And right there in Genesis 15, 6, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and that God counted that to him as righteousness. It's at that moment, because of Abraham's faith in God, that God saw Abraham as righteous. But what's interesting is that 30 years later, so another 10 years that Abraham finally has a kid. He's 100. His wife is 90. 
okay? They have this, this boy named Isaac. 30 years after Genesis 15, 6, God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And so, huge challenge, you can imagine. And if you follow Abraham's story all along the way, his faith was not always stellar. He was not always like rock star faith guy. He uh, twice lied that his wife was his sister. I don't see how you survive that once. But he did that twice to his wife. To save his neck, he lied to foreign kings that his wife was so beautiful, he didn't want him to be killed so the king would take his wife. So he lied twice about that. There was a time he figured God wasn't going to fulfill the promise uh, of having multiple descendants through a 90-year-old wife. So he had sex with a woman named Hagar, one of his servants. So, I mean, this guy was not, you know, James says we all struggle in many ways. Uh, Abraham struggled. But what you see in Abraham's life is that 30 years later, after his faith was counted as righteousness, when God says, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac on an altar, and Abraham went right up to the point of being willing to do that before God intervened. What you see in Abraham is that a faith grew in him and that his love for God was absolute. That his, his love for doing whatever God said was so clear. And at that point, James says, you see that, that Abraham's faith was complete. It was mature. And so that's the, that's the hope I want to give all of us this morning is that wherever we are in our relationship with God, if this is the first time you've ever thought about faith saving you, if this morning is the morning you realize, I need God in my life, and I, I don't know how to do this, and you're hearing this morning, well, you need to believe in Jesus Christ because he can forgive your sins and give you eternal life. You can have a relationship with God. At that moment, God commits to you. He, he, he will never leave you or forsake you. And at that point, God's desire for you is to grow your faith so that it becomes stronger, so that it becomes more complete, so it becomes more and more obvious to the people around you that you have real faith. In fact, if I could just show, there's, there's a chart I want to show you that kind of show the three aspects of our salvation. That the moment you put your faith in Jesus, that's called justification, and you are free from the penalty of sin. You are no longer condemned for your sin. Jesus took your penalty on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took your penalty, he took your punishment, and in exchange, he gave you his life. You're righteous before God. That's justification. That happens at the moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. But then what God does with you is this term called sanctification. He starts growing you, and that's a process. And for many of us, that's a battle. And I, some of us get discouraged to that. It's like, if I've been a Christian for 20 years, why am I still battling? Why do I not have more mercy to people in need? Why am I still battling with this sin or this addiction or this problem? Let me just give you some hope in that, that as long as there's a battle and a struggle, that shows that there's a sign of life, that you're still fighting, that you haven't quit, that when our faith is dead, we've given up. But when there's a struggle and a fight, please know that God has not quit on you, that he is, his, his desire is to grow your faith, to sanctify you so that you become more and more like Jesus Christ. And the way you respond to Jesus now in that battle is the same way you did that first time. Jesus, I need you. I need the cross. I need you to forgive my sins. But that's not to justify you or to remove your punishment. That's to help you grow, to become more like Christ. And then the final phase of our salvation is called glorification, where you're going to be removed from the presence of sin altogether. And that's what happens in heaven. When we no longer struggle sin, when we are completely who God made us to be, living in healthy relationships with each other and in a perfect relationship with our Creator for all of eternity. So that's the process. 
And what James is encouraging us this morning is to make sure that we have real faith. And the way that real faith will be demonstrated to us and the people around us is you'll see a growing love and concern for the people around you who are in need. And you'll see a growing love and obedience for God. Let's just wrap up with this verse here. Paul says this to a church of Christians in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? It's a great word for us this morning to make sure that our faith is real. And so let me just, let me just have us close our eyes. Let me just say a few words to us. And this is something you can do in a reflection with God. Let me just give you three things here. Number one, the way to know, the way to begin with an authentic faith in God is to admit that we're sinners. Admit that we have offended a holy God, that we've hurt people in our lives, that we need his forgiveness. So do you admit that you're a sinner? And then do you believe that Jesus Christ died for you to take away your sin? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is your Savior, that he has rescued you from sin? Is your faith in him alone to save you? Admit you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, and then commit to follow him. Commit to Jesus. Say, Jesus, do what you want with my life. Grow me. Make me more and more like you. Help me love people like you're calling me to love them. And help me love God like you're calling me to love him. Please, again, know God is not after perfection. We will all stumble in many ways. But the amazing thing is, is that Jesus offers you new life. All you do is you put your faith in him. And then he never leaves you, never forsakes you. He comes into your life and he helps you grow to become the man, the woman, the student that God has created you to be. So God, I just pray that you would make your message very clear this morning to all of us that we need you and help us respond with a faith that is real. And then God, do amazing things through your people. And guys, let me close with one passage. You can open your eyes. Let's put Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10 up on the screen. I think this is the perfect balance to what we're talking about. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. If it doesn't go up there, I'll just say it to you. Okay, so uh, the Bible, it says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's how awesome God is. He gives you this gift of salvation. But then it goes on to say this. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So when you receive that message of salvation, what you also get as a gift is that God has this whole string of good works for you to do. So even when you do good things that are helping people in need, you won't say, look what I did. You'll say, look what God did to a sinful man like me. Look what God is doing. And you put God on display and you put the gospel on display. Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 522-45.